Revelation chapter 5 and we'll attempt to make our way through the whole of this chapter. This morning we thought about the throne of heaven. This evening we're thinking about the Lamb of heaven. The Lamb of heaven. Well, if you've been following the news this past couple of weeks, you'll no doubt have noticed a huge amount of attention being given to the COP26 conference in Glasgow, an effort to get world leaders to work together to prevent further climate change. Apparently a deal of some sort has now been announced, but over the last fortnight, politicians and celebrities have been lining up to tell us the world is in our hands. And if we don't act now, then we're headed for catastrophe. We've been destroying the world is the message, but only we can fix the world. It's in our hands. Human beings certainly have shown disrespect and disregard for creation over the centuries. But the fate of the world is not simply in our hands. Revelation 4 and 5 tell us something very different. They're here to show us the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. And in the words of the old children's chorus, he is the one who's got the whole world in his hands. Ultimately, that's the message given to us through the pictures of Revelation 4 to 5 and indeed the whole book. Uh, As I was just saying, Revelation is a, a word picture book. It teaches us things about God and about Christ and about the church and the world through pictures and symbols. Imagine you had a painting of the Eiffel Tower. Maybe some of you do have a painting of the Eiffel Tower in your home and maybe the busy streets of Paris beneath it. The picture isn't reality. If you were to go to Paris tomorrow, there will be differences between the picture, particularly if it's a more impressionistic picture, uh, and uh, what you might call a very arty picture of, of Paris and the Eiffel Tower. There will be differences between your picture and reality. But the picture still tells you something about the reality. And that's what we have with Revelation. We have pictures that teach us something about the reality of heaven and of our, of our God and of our world. And in particular, in these passages, uh, the, the, the pictures rather in these passages teach us that the Lord Jesus Christ has the whole world in his hands. Uh, the Lamb is the central picture of chapter 4. Or sorry, of chapter 5. And the word lamb is one of the most important words in the whole book of Revelation. Uh, Many sermon series or commentaries or books that I've come across uh, in studying Revelation. uh, In the title of them, many of them include something to do with the lamb in the title of the book. Uh, The word is used 30 times. This particular word for lamb is used 30 times in the whole of the New Testament. And 29 of those are here in Revelation. And the Lamb is the central focus of this chapter. And it's a very fitting picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. He is the one who has got the whole world in his hands. And so as we think this evening of the Lamb of heaven, I want to think first of all about the Lamb slain but standing. The lamb slain but standing. 
This particular word for lamb in Revelation, as I say, is used more than 30 times, but it's actually not the same word that is used for lamb uh, in the rest of the Bible. Uh, The New Testament was originally written in Greek, the Old Testament, the vast majority of it in Hebrew. But of course, the Old Testament was uh, translated into Greek uh, at one time. Uh, And if you were to read the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, you would see a different Greek word for lamb than we have here in Revelation. I don't usually give you Greek words, uh, but I'm going to tonight as a a one-off or uh, something I don't do often, but I will tonight. And so the Greek word that you would most often find for lamb in the Greek Old Testament is the word amnos. Amnos. And amnos is the word used of a sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament. It's used more than a hundred times, particularly in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. uh, That's the word for a sacrificial lamb, amnos. But amnos is not the word that's used for lamb in Revelation. In Revelation, it's the word arneon. Arneon. And as my Greek professor from Bible College, the Reverend Warren Peel, has said, uh, the word arneon includes the idea of a sacrificial lamb, but it's also more than that. So the arneon is a sacrificial lamb, but it's not just a sacrificial lamb. The word arneon, in the way that it was used in first century Palestine, could also refer to a boy or to a servant. In Jewish tradition, it was also a word that was used of someone who would come and conquer. So why the quick Greek lesson this evening about amnos and arneon? Well, it's because Revelation, friends, is telling us that this particular lamb that we're going to see all throughout the book, this lamb is unique. This lamb is not just another amnos, not just one of the hundreds of thousands of other sacrificial lambs offered up over the centuries. This is the Arneon lamb. There is more to this lamb. Look again at how this lamb is described in verse 6. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And really we could do without the words as though there in our English translations This lamb has been slain. That's what it means. This lamb has been slain. Uh, The word slain means slaughtered. This lamb has been taken to the butcher. Its blood has been shed. It has gone through a deadly ordeal. And to emphasize that that's the case, the words are repeated three times in the chapter Verse 9, speaking of the Lamb, the the 24 elders declare in verse 9, You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. The words are repeated again in verse 12. (coughs) Why is that? Why why is this emphasized? Well, friends, simply because this Lamb is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who offered himself up, who suffered who was slain on the cross in the place of his people, taking the punishment that his people's sin deserved. And this is such a fitting and powerful picture of Jesus for the church in John's day to receive, that he's the lamb, the arneon. Because remember, friends, that the churches that first received the book of Revelation were suffering. 
always have to remind ourselves who this book was for. The letters to the churches in chapters 2 to 3 show us that they were suffering. These churches in what's now Turkey, Asia Minor in, in that day. They were losing their jobs because they wouldn't start or finish the working day by offering sacrifices to Zeus or Diana or a Roman emperor. They were suffering the loss of relationships because their families and friends thought they were totally bizarre for worshipping a God who had, after all, managed to get himself killed on a cross. And people thought, well, what sort of a God is that that dies? They were missing out on promotions or being totally shunned by society because they didn't indulge in the kind of sexual sin and general godlessness that the people around them in their town or their city did. They didn't celebrate those things the way their society did. Some of these people would soon be physically assaulted. Some of them would have their worship services interrupted or declared illegal. Some of them would be left entirely alone with no friends, no family, no job. And so these churches needed to know, friends, your Savior knows how you feel. Your Savior understands better than you can possibly imagine because your Savior was slain. He has endured all that you have and worse. Jesus' own mother and brothers and sisters at one stage in his life thought he was mad. Imagine, boys and girls, if your mum or your dad, your brothers and sisters just didn't want to have anything more to do with you and were telling people, you know, we're, we just think he's lost his mind. His hundreds of followers quickly dwindled to just 12 and one of them turned out to be a traitor. The last time he saw one of his best friends, the Apostle Peter, before he died, he heard Peter swear that he didn't even know who, he, who Jesus was. And that's before we even get to the mocking and the punching, the whips, the beatings, the thorns, and the dark agony of the wrath of God poured out upon him for the sins of the world. The Lamb of Heaven, friends, has been slain. He has suffered all and worse that his people suffer. But the Lamb hasn't just suffered. He is not just an Amnos. He is the Arneon. Look again at verse 6. What position is the Lamb in, in verse 6? Standing. Standing as though it had been slain. Standing, The lamb has gone through the deadly suffering, even slaughter. And yet the lamb is standing. Standing triumphant. Standing victorious. Standing even after death. And this is a picture of the lamb's triumph. You remember what Paul says when he talks about the armour of God to the Ephesians. He says, having done all, stand firm. If you're still standing, you're victorious at the end of the day. And the lamb is still standing and he is victorious. In fact, when John is first called by the elders to turn and see this lamb, notice how the lamb is described in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And when John turns to see the lion, he in fact sees the lamb. So a lion, lamb, what's that all about? Well, these descriptions, these two descriptions in verse 5 are both pictures of royal heroes, royal conquerors. The lion of Judah was prophesied by Jacob in Genesis chapter 49. It's the symbol of a king. The root of David is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11. It's the promise of the son of David that God had promised to David. One son who would rule over his kingdom forever and bless his people. And again, this is Jesus, friends. He is more than just a sacrificial lamb. He is a standing, triumphant lamb. Uh, The seven horns and seven eyes of this lamb that John also mentions Uh, Verse 6, the seven horns and seven eyes. Those emphasize that this lamb has all the power and authority of God. Because he is God. Uh, The horn is a symbol of strength in the Bible. The eye, a symbol of knowledge. Well, Jesus Christ, God from all eternity, who took on human flesh, who was slain. He is now alive forevermore. He is triumphant and he is God. And the message for John's readers both then and now is very clear, friends. That suffering like the Saviour leads to triumph with the Saviour. Suffering like the Saviour leads to triumph with the Saviour. John's saying to his readers, if you can identify with this lamb at all, if you feel like you might be slain for the stance that you've taken, if you're suffering because of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, well, don't give up. Because look what happens to the lamb who was slain today. He's victorious. And you will be too. The apostle Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Peter says rejoice if you're suffering in the same ways that Jesus did. That, that, that's evidence that you belong with Jesus. That's evidence that someday you will be raised to be with Jesus. There would be something wrong in fact. If we weren't suffering because of our union with Jesus. There would be something wrong if we felt entirely comfortable in this world. If we looked out at this world and thought well I fit in here no problem. We are saved by, we worship, we belong to a slain but standing lamb. Friends, may that both challenge and encourage us this week and in the days to come. Some of you are suffering today. You or a loved one close to you are suffering chronic or intense pain, physical illness. Some of you are suffering the stress and worry of a demanding job. Some of you are suffering from injustice done against you simply because you're a Christian. We all suffer the temptations of life in a fallen world. Temptations to lust, to lie, to be lazy, to be impatient, to be greedy. To believe that our comfort is more important than the needs of others. 
to believe that me time will be more worthwhile than worship time. Be encouraged today, loved ones. We worship a lamb who was slain, who has suffered those, many of those same things and much more, who can sympathize with every weakness, every physical or spiritual blow, every betrayal, every disappointment, every temptation. Remember the lamb slain but standing when you face temptation this week. Remember the lamb slain but standing when you feel exhausted or discouraged. Remember the lamb slain but standing in the midst of physical pain that feels like it will never end. Remember the lamb slain but standing as you care for your home and your children, doing work that the world says isn't worthwhile or important. Remember the lamb slain but standing when people hate you, mock you, ostracize you for your faith. Remember the lamb, friends, and rejoice. And remember that the Lord Jesus has you and has this whole world in his nail-scarred hands. The lamb slain but standing. I want to also consider this evening the scroll that the lamb may take. The scroll that the lamb may take. Uh, Apart from the lamb, the the other very important picture in Revelation 5 is the picture of the scroll. If you look back at chapter 5 and verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Notice again the number seven. Uh, This scroll again is being described to us as being unique. This is not an ordinary scroll. Uh, In the ancient world, ordinarily, you didn't write on both sides of a scroll. Notice that it says here uh, that this scroll was written on front, uh, sorry, within and on the back. So there was writing on both sides of this scroll. Uh, That was rarely the case uh, in in the ancient world. Scrolls were made out of papyrus. One side of it would be smoothed off and prepared so that you could write on it. The other side was left hard and coarse, and that would be the outside side. And you would only write in one side because you wouldn't want people to see uh, what was written. So the outside would be kept hidden on the, on, the rougher, on the rougher edge. The only time that you would write on both sides of a scroll was either if you couldn't afford more papyrus. Or perhaps if what was written inside was so important that you wanted a summary of it on the other side. So we would put all the detail on the inside and maybe you would put a summary on the outside. And that was particularly common with Roman wills. This was how the Romans uh, had their wills prepared, their last will and testament, all sealed up, uh, perhaps with a summary on the outside. And then as soon as the person died and the will was to be put into effect, the seal would be torn off. And immediately all the instructions in that will were to be carried out exactly as they had been written. Well, the question then, of course, is what is this scroll in heaven all about? What's written on this scroll uh, that's in God's right hand? And, of course, that's picture language again when it talks about God's right hand. Well, all sorts of answers have been suggested to the question of what this scroll is. If you're interested in hearing some of the answers, you can ask me after the service. But to save time now, uh, I'll tell you what I believe to be the most logical and likely answer 
The scroll, friends, is the plan of God for all time and history. And it is a plan that includes judgment and salvation. It is the plan of God for all time and history. And it is a plan that includes judgment and salvation. Uh, Why do I I say that? And I'm not the only one that says that, in case you think I've come up with this from the top of my head. But two main reasons why we believe this scroll to be the plan of God for all time, which includes judgment and salvation. First of all, because Revelation is a book shaped and formed by the Old Testament. And I mentioned that this morning. Uh, In particular, Revelation is packed full of symbols and pictures from the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter 12, we find some references to sealed books. Daniel 7 verse 9 and following. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat and the books were opened. The scrolls were unraveled. And after that happens in Daniel chapter 7, you have several chapters in that book of hearing bits and pieces of what is contained in those scrolls. And what is contained in those scrolls, friends, are promises of judgment and promises of salvation from God. And you can read Daniel chapter 7 to 12, and you'll see that. As uh, when the books are unraveled, they're about judgment and salvation. But then in Daniel chapter 12, we read these words. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So for several chapters, Daniel hears and sees what's in these scrolls in the book. And then they're rolled up and sealed. And now here in Revelation chapter 5, it's time for the scroll to be opened and unsealed. And for God's plans of judgment and salvation to be fully accomplished. So that's one reason to believe that this scroll is God's plan for all time in history. Because there's good Old Testament precedent for it. But the other reason to believe that this scroll contains God's plans for judgment and salvation. Quite simply friends is because that's what the rest of the book of Revelation is all about. Uh, The rest of the book of Revelation is about what God has been doing, what he is doing now, and what he will do in the end. It's about the ways in which God brings judgment upon this world. And it's about the way that God has brought redemption, salvation for his people in this world. It's about God's perfect, sovereign, eternal plan. And that's why this scroll has seven seals. Again, the number of perfection. And again, if you were to read on into Revelation 6, uh, when the first of the seven seals are broken, you'll see that what comes next are acts of God's judgment. So as this book begins to be unraveled, judgment comes. Not judgment just in the future, but acts of judgment even here and now in the present time. So friends, here we have a scroll containing God's plans for all history, acts of judgment and salvation, past, present and future. And a bit like someone's last will and testimony, this plan needs someone to execute it. Someone needs to put God's plan 
into motion. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John weeps, friends, the thought that no one in all heaven or earth is capable or good enough to carry out the will of God. John has glimpsed the glory of the one seated on heaven's throne that we thought about this morning. John has seen his glory and he has seen a glimpse of his judgment and he has seen a glimpse of his grace. And John thinks, well, this glorious God, we need to see his plan come to fruition. We need to see this perfect plan of judgment upon God's enemies and grace for God's people. We need to see that come about. And John is devastated at the thought that it might not come about. William William Hendrickson, a very helpful commentator in Revelation, he says it this way. If this scroll remains sealed, God's purposes are not realised. It would mean that there will be no protection for God's children in the hours of bitter trial. No judgments upon a persecuting world. No ultimate triumph for believers. No new heaven and earth. No future inheritance. If this scroll isn't sealed, isn't unsealed, it's going to be a disaster for God's suffering saints. Because this scroll holds the promise that God is going to deliver them and that God is going to judge their enemies. But then one of the elders declares in verse 5 Weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, slain but standing, is worthy to take the scroll, to do God's will, to bring judgment and salvation to our world. Look at verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right, from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And this prompts worship from the elders and the creatures of heaven. Verse 9, look how they worship him. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Jesus alone is worthy to execute the will of God, to take the whole world into his hands, because he has been slain. And he has triumphed. And the rest of the book, friends, will show us King Jesus executing God's plans for judgment and for salvation. But just for this evening, again, friends, consider, consider the immense comfort it is to know that the will of God, the perfect will of our perfect God for all time in history is in the hands of our Saviour. What a comfort that is as we live in a society so godless, so morally dark and bankrupt that seems to care nothing for God's word. 
What a comfort it is as we see the chaotic and troubling scenes from Afghanistan or Ethiopia or even sadly sometimes still the streets of Belfast. What a comfort for each of us ordinary little people. When you're trying to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of God. When you have one of those days when everything seems to be chaos. Little ones running wild while you're running late. And you can't find your car keys and you're dealing with a dozen little disasters at once. And it all seems like chaos. It's not chaos as far as the lamb is concerned. He has the scroll of God in his hands. He has the nations in his hands. He has you in his hands. As I said this morning, friends, let these passages drastically change your perspective. We're down here on earth. We're slogging along. We're slogging along with cancer, COVID, a rising cost of living, economic uncertainty, a spiritually dead culture. Friends, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold the lamb slain but standing. Behold the plan of God in the hands of your Savior. That plan includes every detail of your life from beginning to end. He knew the moment you would be born. He knows the moment you will die. Those amazing words that we sang earlier from Psalm 139. In your book or in your scroll were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Everything from the rise and fall of nations to the location of your car keys tomorrow morning. Everything is in the book of the Lamb. And he is worthy to take it and put it into action. So we've seen the Lamb slain but standing. We've seen uh, the scroll that the Lamb may take. Thirdly and finally and more briefly, the worship that the Lamb receives. The worship that the Lamb receives. One writer says that what we're seeing in Revelation 5 is the enthronement of Christ. That is him being recognized as heaven's king and receiving all the authority that goes with that. Many of us here tonight will most likely live, uh, unless Christ returns first, we will live to see a new monarch enthroned over our nation. King Charles III or whatever title he chooses to take. I have no idea of all the traditions and procedures that will take, pla- take place during his coronation. But whatever happens during the ceremony, friends, it will all serve the very simple purpose of declaring Charles to be king. And that's what's happening here in Revelation chapter 5. The lamb slain but standing is being recognized as the king of heaven and earth. And that recognition quite rightly leads to worship. Look at verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We'll deal with that picture later on in the book. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Here's a scene, friends, of music and of worship and of singing and of prayer and of praise. I said this morning, the 24 elders most likely represent the whole church, past, present and future. The church in heaven and the church on earth. And these elders representing the church fall down before the Lamb, just as they fell down before God the Father in chapter 4. And they joyfully and reverently and gladly worship the Lamb just as much as they worshipped God the Father. Here's further evidence, friends, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's described as having the attributes of God here. All powerful, all knowing, the seven horns and the seven eyes. And so he is rightly worshipped as God by the creation and by the church. And again, notice the particular grounds for their praise in verse 9. It's because he was slain. Because his blood has ransomed people from every tribe and language. And we're part of that today. This small gathering here in Dremore, we are part of that gathering of people from all tribes, nations, skin colors, languages throughout history. And we will do for eternity what we do weekly here on earth. We will praise God for his ransoming of us through the blood of the Lamb. And again, it's not just the church that worships the Lamb, but the angels, thousands, countless angels, verses 11 and 12. And all creation uh, symbolized in the living creatures, verses 13 and 14. Worship, friends, is all about our response to what God has done. It's not, as so many mistakenly assume today, it's not about us bringing to God what we think he'll like. It is us responding to God in the ways he has commanded for what he has done. And sooner or later, all of creation, all peoples, tribes, languages, creatures, angels, all creation will worship the lamb, slain but standing. The question is not, will you worship the lamb? When he comes back to this earth, when he begins the final judgment of every man, woman and child, you will worship him. You will bow before him. The question is only, will you gladly worship him, having already been worshipping him for your life on earth? Or will you be forced to worship him? having refused to do so your entire life. The lamb only had to be slain because sinners needed to be saved. You have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You are not worthy to approach the throne of heaven. Only the lamb is. And your name is known to this lamb Just as the names of all of us are known to this lamb, written in a book before you were even born. He knows you. He knows everything about you. And he gives you opportunity to gladly worship him now. Before you're forced to worship him at the end. Which will it be for you? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you confessed your sins to him? Have you put your trust in? In his redeeming blood. Blood that rescues you. Covers you. Purchases you and saves you. Or are you leaving yourself open to the judgments. 
of God's book that we'll be seeing as we study Revelation, the judgments that will one day rain down on sinners. Whatever might be going on in our world today, in your life or mine, the Lamb has got the whole world in his hands. What a comfort, what good news. The only right response to that is to fall down and worship the Lamb of heaven, slain but standing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.